If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus chews. It's day four of Creatures Week on Atlas Obscura, and day 14 out of our Atlas Obscura advent calendar. We have journeyed through space, microbes. We are now at the animals. So far this week, we have met deadly spiders in a natural history museum, parrots living in a Victorian cemetery, and bats performing a service in a library in Portugal. And there's a theme here beyond just the creatures— It is this ability of life to carve a space for itself in really surprising places. It is not easy to be an animal in the age of humanity. But life also proves astonishingly able to find every single crack and crevice it can claim. Or in the case of this episode, a place that an animal can reclaim. Sometimes human activity makes it impossible for animals to find space, but other times our behavior opens up new spaces for them. This is the case with the cranes that have made their home on the strip of no man's land between North and South Korea. Today, we join producer Sarah Wyman to meet these beautiful, towering, six-foot-tall birds, powerful enough to kill a wolf, that live in the space created by the frozen war between North and South Korea. Enjoy. A few years ago, when he was living in South Korea, Spike Millington would go on this annual pilgrimage. Every winter, he'd wake up early in the morning, get in his car, and start driving towards North Korea. What is it like when you drive out there? What does it look like? So you drive through basically agricultural landscapes, but you're driving along the sort of boundary area with North Korea. There's high fences with barbed wire on the top, so you know you're in a security area. Between North and South Korea, there's a demilitarized zone, DMZ for short. It stretches from coast to coast, about two and a half miles wide. It is heavily patrolled. There are virtually no humans allowed in there. But outside the DMZ, on the South Korean side, is what's called the civilian control zone. You're allowed in if you have permission to be there, like to manage utilities or to farm. But this zone is also highly secured. 
you have to go through checkpoints. You give them your passport and um, they take the registration of the car. And then once you're in there, it's actually, the whole thing is kind of just a landscape that in a sense is taking you back in time. Mm. The beautiful valleys with the reeds and the, and the rivers, the rice paddies interspersed with, with streams and there are forests growing in those swamps. Spike would drive his car into one of the fields. He'd park. And then he'd take out his binoculars. He'd focus them in between brown rice stalks, scanning slowly across the paddy, until a white flash, a long neck popping up out of the reeds. I'm Sarah Wyman, and this is Atlas Obscura a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're heading to the DMZ between North and South Korea, where two of the world's most endangered crane species have found an accidental bird sanctuary. That's after this. I fell in love with cranes when I was eight years old and I'm 75 years old and working full time and have no plans to retire. I feel like I'm 22 until I look in the mirror. (laughs) This is George Archibald. He's the co-founder of the International Crane Foundation. I've noticed, too, the bird song that's quietly been in the background as we've been chatting. Yeah, I have my windows open and the spring is in full bloom here and birds are everywhere. Since the 70s, George's mission has been to save the world's cranes. Out of 15 species of cranes, 11 are endangered. Saving cranes often means navigating conflict zones. When Russia invaded Afghanistan in 1979, George's foundation was on the ground, helping the cranes there. And George told me now he's worried about colleagues of his in Ukraine. We're there all the time, come hell or high water for the cranes. And uh, we, we live through these things. It's not like getting a grant and going in for three years and doing a project. It's like forever. Where George lives today, in Baraboo, Wisconsin, there are sandhill and whooping cranes. A couple of them breed in the marsh at the end of his driveway. Whenever he walks to his mailbox, he likes to feed them corn. And they're beautiful birds, and they're huge birds, and they're intelligent birds. For example, one day I forgot to feed them, and they they walked up to the house, walked up the platform, and started calling at the kitchen door. (laughs) And they had never been even near the house before. Some of them are bossy, some of them are bullies, so... They do have those personalities. This is Spike Millington again. He works with George at the International Crane Foundation, and he focuses on crane populations in Asia, like the red-crowned and white-naped cranes living in Korea. 
What do these birds look like? I guess starting with the red-crowned crane. Well, it's about as tall as I am. No. So it's about six feet. Almost. What? It's a tall bird. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, you know, it stands like more than, higher than five feet. Most of it's coming from the legs and the neck. Wow. What kind of wingspan do they have on average? I would say around seven feet. So they could be intimidating if they wanted to be. Well, in captivity, they can be very dangerous. So keepers have to carry a broom or wear goggles and protect themselves. They have very, very powerful beaks. So they've been known to kill wolves and coyotes and so on by striking their eyes. So they're a major force out on the marsh. Okay, so now I know that cranes can be certified badasses. But still, their populations are fragile. Red-crowned cranes are the second rarest crane species in the world. Today, there's only about 3,000 of them left in the wild. Cranes die when they run into power lines. They're also killed off by pesticides. And often, they compete with people for habitats. Here's Spike. For the most part, cranes are wetland species. So wetland species are often reclaimed for agriculture. They're the first to go because the soils are very fertile. So habitat loss is really the main issue, I think, for cranes. And that brings us back to the DMZ, a strip of land where humans have not been allowed to build or farm since 1953, a pristine wetland habitat for the cranes. Every year, every winter time, I surveyed the cranes in Korea. So we could know how many uh, cranes wintering in Korea now. Meet Kisap Lee. He leads an organization called Waterbird Network Korea. For 20 years, he has been monitoring the cranes of the DMZ. He told me that in Korea, cranes have special cultural significance. People used to think they could live for thousands of years, and they're still part of Korean New Year traditions. In New Year, uh, we have a custom to give some card to the friends with cranes, a crane card uh, for long life. And the crane means long life and happiness. But even though he grew up hearing about cranes, Kisup didn't actually see one in the wild until he was 20 years old. Because before the 1950s, cranes were incredibly rare in Korea. So to see one when he was a university student, Kisup had to make a special trip. I remember uh, I went to the coast of the western coast, Incheon area. The bus to the coast took hours. And then Kisup had to hike even further. His eyes were peeled for red-crowned cranes. I had to walk long hours, and I could see only one red-crowned crane at a time. I remember that. <laughs> After that long trip? Yes, I could only one red-crowned crane at a time. But so impressive to me. Cranes are a migratory species. Every year, female red-crowned and white-naped cranes lay two eggs in areas around southeastern Russia. After the eggs hatch, the whole family piles into their crane Volkswagen and flies south, stopping over at different wetlands along the way, refueling. For a lot of the birds, Korea is the last stop, the place to hunker down for winter. But in the early 1950s, when the crane families started to show up in Korea, they found a changed landscape. Because 
of Korean War, many habitats destroyed, and I think many cranes died at the times. All land was destroyed. It took the land and Korea decades to recover from the violence of the war. And there was one section of land where towns were not rebuilt, the DMZ. Year after year, the migrating cranes found their way to this 150-mile strip of nature with no humans to contend with. In the early 1970s, George Archibald got word that some American soldiers had spotted cranes living in the DMZ. He and the International Crane Foundation got on it. Within a few years, George had won a grant to send a professor from Seoul into the DMZ. And before long, George was migrating over to Korea every winter himself. And uh, we had permission to go into areas where no one had been allowed to go before. You may be wondering how a couple of gentle bird watchers and conservationists got permission to wander into the DMZ. Well, it turns out the U.S. Secretary of Defense at the time, a guy named Jim Schlesinger, was a birder in his spare time. He helped George get permission to access United Nations command areas to help the endangered cranes. And uh, I, I finally got permission to go in there in 1974 and 75. And we found all these cranes and so on. <laughs> You're very matter of fact about it now. But at the time, I mean, how did that feel? Were you, were you excited? Of course we were. They recruited farmers on either side of the DMZ to help with this effort, to effectively expand the safe zone for the cranes. For starters, there was concern that the cranes were flying into nearby telephone wires. And so they buried all the telephone wires under the ground, and then uh, they, they provide some extra food in the tough winters. So it's a very welcoming place for cranes. So if I was a crane, that's where I would go. Since the 1970s, the number of red-crowned and white-naped cranes living in the DMZ have both been steadily increasing. Spike, George, and Kesup all told me these results are incredibly encouraging. The only problem is, the DMZ is shrinking. This was news to me. But over the years, North and South Korea have both been slowly pushing their barbed wire fences closer and closer to each other. Green Korea, a wildlife conservation group, recently released a report saying the DMZ has shrunk by 43% in the last 60 years. So what's the future for the DMZ? We all hope for peace in Korea. It's a real conundrum. If, if peace comes to Korea, we'll likely lose the major wintering areas for the cranes. And where do they go? Will they go back to Japan? Will they go to other areas of South Korea and cause crop damage? So the future is very uncertain. Everything could change overnight. In a perfect world, the International Crane Foundation would love to buy that land and ensure it remained a protected area. But it's the DMZ. So that could end up being very difficult and expensive. If the DMZ ever disappears, that real estate will be snapped up fast, and it's likely it will be developed. I asked Spike about this idea, that 
peace between North and South Korea, while good for humans could be a major threat to the cranes. And he had a different take. I don't know that it's a huge threat for the cranes. I mean, I don't look at it that way. I look at it as more of an opportunity to use the cranes as a bridge between the two Koreas, because they both have cranes embedded in their culture. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could use the cranes and say, look, these are the birds of peace that are bringing the two Koreas together, and we're creating space for them either side of this uh, boundary. And the DMZ isn't just a neutral boundary. Kisup pointed out that this place carries a lot of history and symbolic and emotional weight. The DMZ is a battlefield. There were so many fights uh, with North Korea and South Korea at Korean War. So many soldiers died at that place. Kisup told me about one specific spot in Chewan, where lots of the cranes live. During the war, thousands of soldiers were killed there. So they called this the Blood Hill. Blood Hill. Kisup knows that history can never be erased. But like Spike, when Kisup sees cranes flying over the DMZ, he sees a new chapter for this land, for these cranes, and maybe even for the people who live on either side. It became the crane site. And its calling is so unique. So uh, that looks like they say peace. So we sometimes say a crane is the symbol of peace. Uh, The crane is the symbol of peace in Korea. Huge thanks to Kisup Lee, Spike Millington, and George Archibald for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks also to Karen Becker. If you enjoyed learning about the cranes in this episode, I highly recommend that you check out the International Crane Foundation at savingcranes.org. There are pictures of these gorgeous and gigantic birds on their website, and more information about how to donate and help the cause. There's a link in the show notes. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was edited by Johanna Mayer, John Delore. Our production team includes Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder-Arnold, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed by Chris Naka and mixed by Luce Fleming. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Sarah Wyman. Thanks for listening. Witness Docs from Stitcher. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection. 
infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.